The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. We've recently had some great conversations with directors whose documentaries are currently available on Netflix. Ken and I spoke with Rory Kennedy about Downfall, her searing indictment of Boeing and its enablers. We also spoke with Andrew Rossi about the Andy Warhol Diaries, in which he reveals the poignantly personal side of the legendary artist. And Ken spoke with Cootie Simmons and Chiki Oza about Genius, a portrait of another great artist, the young Kanye West, as he makes his way from obscurity to renown. You can find these conversations in the Top Docs feed, and you can watch these documentaries now on Netflix. I'm Mike Merrill. Welcome to Top Docs. Today, I spoke with Dana Goldfein and Dan Geller about Hallelujah, Leonard Cohen, A Journey, A Song. The title says it all. The documentary follows the making of Cohen's fame song from his first days as a songwriter to a midlife deepening of his interest in his faith to the song's burial in effect by the record company. And finally, the long road on the way to becoming recognized as one of our great songs, a period in which a late life Cohen and many, many other artists embraced it. I was especially interested in how Dana and Dan see this song as part of Cohen's spiritual journey and how many of the other characters in the film, whether critic, collaborator, or unlikely champion, Bob Dylan, saw it that way too. Dana and Dan have previously been known for offerings such as Ballet Russe and the Galapagos Affair. Hallelujah is from Sony Pictures Classics. It's now showing in select cities. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do follow us wherever you get your podcast. And now my conversation with Dana and Dan about their film, Hallelujah. Dana and Dan, welcome to Top Docs. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Do you have a hidden gem, a documentary film that you think doesn't get the attention that it deserves? Yes, The Truffle Hunters. It's such a beautiful film and it just got caught in the jaws of the COVID shutdown. It's exquisite. It's so beautifully shot. It's so beautifully observed. It's such an interesting slice of life. It's poetic. And Michael and Greg, who we met through that film, and we actually volunteered to do a COVID Q&A, which is what things were reduced to entirely at that point. I just can't sing their praises high enough. It's a gorgeous film. Dan stole my thunder. Ah. <laughs> I was going to say that, but I do have another one that's older. I'm not sure it's a hidden gem. I don't know whether other people know about it, but it's something that I use. I've used every time we've gone into the editing room. It's called The Five Obstructions by Lars von Trier. And it's one of the most brilliant documentaries about artistic process. And anyone who ever has spent even a day in the editing room knows what it's like to run up against a brick wall. And it gets me out of it. I just watch that and I'm like, Okay, this guy got through those obstructions. I can do it too. Why do you make documentary films? Oh, it's like getting a pass to a new world that usually I know nothing about, where I get to meet all kinds of amazing people from places and perspectives and ideas that I would never, ever get to meet otherwise. So selfishly, I would say it's a ticket to a fabulous ride. How about you, Dan? I love movies. I love cinema. I love the ability to jump through time and jump through space. There's something visceral of going from a wide shot and pounding into a close-up that allows you to do things that you can only do in a dream. And for me, the 
depth of what a documentary can afford, a nonfiction form and the nonfiction style of storytelling and the intelligence usually that's permitted in a movie, in a documentary, combined with the ability to control your own destiny for the most part. You know, you can take a camera, go out and start making a movie. All those things combine for me to why as someone drawn towards cinema in general, the documentary form is so attractive. So there have been a number of accounts of Leonard Cohen's life, both in books and in film. Why did you decide to focus on Hallelujah? It came out of a dinner table conversation, which spontaneously, really, David Thompson, the very renowned film writer, asked us about eight years ago, have you ever considered making a documentary about a song? And neither of us had. I would hazard a guess that at that moment in time, neither of us thought it was a great idea. Also as a secondhand idea, he had prefaced that by saying that he had mulled over the idea of writing a book about a song, just as a general project, not a particular song, and thought the better of it. So <laughs> talk about, you know, it would, turned out to be a brilliant secondhand idea as far as a trigger to give him credit. We saw him the other day, went out to dinner while the movie was screening at the Roxy here in San Francisco and laughed a lot about that. Even though my conscious mind didn't think it was a great idea, clearly my subconscious mind did because just completely unbidden about 10 minutes or so later in the middle of that dinner, that same dinner, I got this unbelievably um, real visceral memory flooding back of Leonard Cohen at the Paramount in Oakland. We were lucky enough to see two of those concerts there. When he sang Hallelujah at that point in his life, it was the most unbelievably moving. You know, both times that we saw him, he would get down on his knees when he started the song. And it was the most sincere, gorgeous, heartbreaking, heart-fulfilling rendition. So that came back to me. And I turned to Dan and I said, oh, wow. Guess what? That question that we were talking about a couple minutes ago, I knew the answer. It would have to be Leonard Cohen in the song Hallelujah. We didn't know the story of how difficult it was for Leonard to write the song, the rejection of the song, how it came back around to become such a major song. We had known Jeff Buckley's version. Dana and I had heard Buckley's version. We had the live at Sinead CD set, but it was a huge surprise and a great, <laughs> a great treasure to realize that there was such a great plot as well as what would afford a chance to examine Leonard Cohen's spiritual seeking and spiritual journey and all the things that make Leonard Cohen so fascinating. We discovered that amazing plot because say after that dinner in going online and doing a Google search on Hallelujah and Leonard Cohen, the first thing up was Alan Light's book, The Holy or the Broken. Yep. We ordered it and then I devoured it first. And then I said, Dan, read this. There's definitely a story here. So Within a week of that dinner table conversation, we knew that we had this kind of juicy topic. We didn't know if we were going to be able to pull it off, but we approached Alan Light and asked him if anyone had ever wanted to make a documentary out of his book. And it just then kept going from there. The archives are opened up to you at some point. Was Leonard Cohen involved in that negotiation? Alan Light very wisely gave us the best piece of advice <laughs> that he had gleaned from his own process, which was Leonard at that point, he knew was no longer interested in any kind of interview. And that for Alan's book, he approached Leonard by saying, no interview necessary, just the tacit blessing. And he advised us to do the same. When we first talked to Alan Light about it and said, 
has anyone ever wanted to do a documentary about your book? He said, yes, everyone's dropped off though. And there's three reasons. We're like, oh, lay them on us. And the first reason was that it had become apparent to all the people who snoofed around that Leonard would never sit for an interview or be involved. And so that's where Dan and I said, that's a great obstruction. That's kind of throwing the gauntlet down. We don't find that to be a deal killer. And that's how we approached Robert Corey, who was Leonard's manager at the time, and made it short and sweet and said, no interview. We don't want to bother you for anything. We just need your tacit blessing. It turned out there were a couple other teams that were interested in doing something of this sort about Hallelujah. Robert pressured Leonard and said, look, we got to get back to these people. Look around. What do you think? And Leonard looked at our work, looked at our website and our approach. He got back to Robert really quickly and said, how about that couple from San Francisco? That seems right. And from that began the process of working with Sony Publishing to create a licensing deal that would encompass our broad use of the song, but at a price that we could afford. And it took a year and a half. But that was great because we did a lot of research in that time. We didn't shoot, but we did a lot of connecting and finding things out along the way. The part that you're talking about where the trust, because Robert then was designated the head of the Cohen Family Trust, that opening up of the archives became later. It, it wasn't until we'd shot a lot and started to edit that we even dare to ask for anything. In terms of getting access to the archive, what Dan talked about is true. And Robert made it absolutely clear when he called us and said, Leonard has given you his tacit approval. We said, what does that really mean? And he said, it means you're getting nothing else from us except the tacit approval. And if you ask us for anything, we could take it away. And you've got to go negotiate on your own. So this was the fall of 2014 when Leonard was turning 80. It took us a good 18 months to get to the point where we felt comfortable shooting. We got the contract signed with Sony Publishing. Our first shoot was with Ratso Sloan and it was in July of 2016. We had a couple months of filming and then Leonard passed away in November of 2016. And then there was the grief. That was, was a tough happened. week. That was a very tough that, week. Yeah, yeah oh there was something God. else that God. happened. You know, you wanted darker, we killed the flame that yeah, the right. for that. Oh but my yeah. God. Honestly, I was at Safeway shopping for what we thought was going to be our victory party for Hillary the next night. And I started getting these texts from people who knew, like Ratso, Hal Wilner, saying, rumors are flying that Leonard's passed away. They didn't admit it to the world for a few more days because they wanted it to be a quiet family thing. But yeah, he actually died the day before Trump was elected. Let's jump to the actual film itself. Let's talk about the start. I think you started in an unusual place. So let me set that up a little bit. After a brief intro, you start with Birth of a Songwriter. We drop in on Leonard Cohen. He's already in his 30s. He's published a couple of books of poetry. I believe his first novel is about to come out. And what's interesting is usually when people tell the story of Leonard Cohen and Hallelujah, they tend to start with him at nine years old, losing his father. His family was in the clothing manufacturing business. When his father died, Leonard Cohen cut his father's tie, put a note in it and buried it in the backyard. And this is often considered, I'll say by a lot of people say by me, as the early trauma from which all else flows. You know, it's kind of like the golden key, the depression, the womanizing, the work ethic, writing as therapy, even the sartorial flair. It all comes from this moment. That's not where you start. You do cover the story a little bit later, briefly. You start when he's already in his 30s. Can you talk about why you wanted to start there? Yeah, a lot of it was intuitive because we knew from the start that we were not going to do a cradle to grave examination of Leonard Cohen. And everything had to be through the prism of the song Hallelujah, 
when we first started editing, we didn't even know that it was going to be a chronological film. We thought maybe it'll just jump back and forth. But the only way to get a handle on it was to start chronologically. And we felt like because it's looking at him through the prism of his song, let's start from the moment when Leonard announces to the world that he is a songwriter, because that really was shocking. People in Canada had been thinking of Tim as a beloved poet since the early 60s. And here he is with his second novel in the late 60s. And all of a sudden, he's announcing that in addition to being a writer of poems and novels, he's actually going to write songs. And so we thought that was a great place to start. And we liked being able to start from this moment where he's questioned hard about that. Adrian Clarkson gives him a little bit of a hard time. Also, I think it's too neat to say everything came out of the death of his father. I lost my dear sister when she was 46 years old. She had three kids left behind. Those three kids all responded in different ways to the trauma. There are many influences on Leonard. Some people are just genetically predisposed to depression. If you say at age nine, this happened, but what about all the time spent in the synagogue with his grandfather? I mean, there's so many pieces that fit into making Leonard Cohen. But I think when we do touch on his father, it's in that context of at age 40, going back to examine his Jewish roots, because that's really when he began to write songs that have a much more directly liturgical angle to them. It's really about his self-creation in some way too, which I think is powerful. Let's talk about writing. When we think about songwriters and songwriting, we tend to think of Joni Mitchell or Neil Young with a guitar, using some Canadian folks there, or Elton John or Nina Simone at the piano. But when we think of Leonard Cohen, probably we should think of him hunched over a notebook. Blackening pages. That's what he said many times. I blacken pages. And I do think he wrote the words first. Obviously, I can't swear on a Bible, but you know, I do think that he spent his time writing words, trying to get every word to be the perfect word, and then worked on putting it to music. Oh, it's the exact opposite of what we see in the Get Back documentary, where yeah, McCartney's wigging out on a guitar and all you just hear some of the energy and get back is starting to come into focus. There are no lyrics, but there's a, a melody that's developing. And I wonder whether Leonard had some sort of melodic sense as he was writing into the rhythm of the poetry, because clearly poetry has meter to it. But I don't know is at what point in the moving back and forth between the page and a, a guitar or a Casio at some point, was he trying to you know, match them in and out of each other. The two people that appear in our film that probably could answer that, at least in terms of their own personal experience, would be John Lissauer and Sharon Robinson. And John talks about how after doing New Skin, the album they did together in 74, Leonard turns to John and says, maybe we should make an album together. And John asks him, what do you mean? Do you mean that we sit at a piano together and start composing everything? Or do you mean that you give me your poetry and I start putting it to music? And Leonard said, let's do that. So that tells you that at least when he was in his 40s, it started from the poetry and then was transposed into the music. And then Sharon told us the same thing. You know, he was up on Mount Baldy. And as Nancy Bacall says in the film, when you're sitting Zazen, you're supposed to be clearing your mind. What was Leonard doing? He was writing songs. So he comes down from the mountain with most of the songs that were on 10 New Songs, ultimately, which is the first album that he really fully, you know, co-did with Sharon Robinson. And again, he had these unbelievably 
beautiful poem or verses that had come out of his blackening of the pages over that five-year period when he was on the mountain. And Sharon helped him put them to music. And I think the other thing we tend to think of as a solitary songwriter, and you did a great job of showing how he worked in collaboration with John Lissauer, with Sharon Robinson, and yes, even Phil Spector, disastrously in some people's opinion. The other important part of this picture, in addition to Leonard Cohen and his collaborators, are the critics, many of whom really did not recognize what was going on in his important work in the late 70s or early 80s, but one did. You return to this person repeatedly, this person on the great sobriquet, Ratso Sloman. He provides kind of an evaluative and even interpretive spine, I'd argue, to your whole project. Who is Ratso and what's his importance to Leonard Cohen? Ratso was a cub reporter for Rolling Stone magazine when he got in touch with Leonard. And Ratso, who wrote On the Road with Bob Dylan and the whole Rolling Thunder tour, he's larger than life. He is his own person. And I think what Leonard cottoned to with Ratso is that Ratso was not sucking up to anyone. And Ratso had genuinely curious mind, also is a very good writer. There was a meeting of souls that way. And I think the Jewish bonding, you know, Ratso could understand when Leonard was drawing on something from his spiritual background, his religious background. Well, right under what the Kabbalah was, exactly. you know. <laughs> Most he, reporters wouldn't know from Kabbalah. And that began a lifelong interaction of meetings of the mind, of meetings for writing articles, of hanging out some. I, there are audio tapes of where Ratso goes up to Montreal. They wind up crashing a party that Leonard's in and taking out to go get smoked meats at a deli. In some ways, there are two people who were able to understand in each other the depth and absurdity of life at the same time. And I think one of the wonderful things about Ratso is he's almost like a foil. And the fact that he, we have his very first phone interaction, and I think he's incapable of lying. Leonard says, what time do you get up in the morning? Leonard's like, so do you get up early? He's like, no, I'll be there afternoon. <laughs> I'm like, not, if Leonard Cohen told me to get up early, I get up early. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, like, you even admit that you didn't get up early. Yeah. When, when the sun's warm, man. Um, yeah, I, exactly. Well, if you want to come off as a pro, you don't tell someone that you get up around 11 o'clock and that, you know, you don't have a phone and that your stereo is out at your parents' house on Long Island. I think that Leonard appreciated that, that honesty as well. There's a moment where Rats is probing Leonard about what was his first love? What did he first fall in love with? And Leonard doesn't really want to answer this. And Ratz is saying, you know, was it an older aunt? <laughs> yeah, and, no. <laughs> and, and, and Leonard just has this line, which in some ways just sums up everything. He says, you never change, do you? There were a few journalists who did have ongoing friendships. Chris Doritos. Chris so Doritos, a long time DJ for Morning Comes Eclectic. Chris did a Q&A for us a couple of weeks ago, and we actually have his voice in some of the Mount Baldy section. And you see the relationship between Leonard and Chris. In fact, when he came on stage at the Hammer Museum, Chris comes on stage, he's moderating, and he turns to Robert Corey, Leonard's longtime manager and now head of the trust, and says, well, Robert, the last time I saw you was at Leonard's memorial. So he clearly had a different relationship than the one that Ratso had, but a very close relationship that included many years of interviewing Leonard. Chris Doritos, by the way, definitely was one of the people who popularized that music from the, say, 80s that Leonard Cohen was doing and brought it to people's attention. More to Becomes Eclectic has come up on this podcast before. Billie Eilish made her radio debut there as well. So let me talk about documentary style. I think there's been a move in documentaries around music recently. It follows a broader move, which is kind of a move towards information overload. The paragon of this probably is Todd Haynes' Velvet Underground. 
documentary where all these multiple feeds of information are coming at you at once. But even I'd say Summer of Soul, Questlove's documentary is pretty quickly edited. You don't really take that style. Your style is much more stately, I'd say. A lot of the photos appear with frames around them. So you're not deconstructing and pulling apart the data in the same way some of these others do. Can you talk about your overall approach to the visual information and style? Forum follows function, you know, and in this case, the function is to respect the stateliness of what Leonard Cohen created and Leonard Cohen's thoughtful nature. Uh, remember years ago, we were working with an editor named Nick Dorsky. He was one of the editors helping on Valley Roos for a while. Nick would say, can we be a little bit adult here? Meaning we don't need to rush. We can take a serious subject, a subject that has elegance and trust that the audience can hang with it and look at a frame for a little while and not have to shoot off confetti cannons every five seconds. You know that there is this urge in at least the current documentary landscape to do a lot of quick cutting and visual effects. And we've been sometimes criticized for not being flashier, but ultimately it felt like a Leonard Cohen movie. And the images are so beautiful. I can look at his face in different photographs forever. It just didn't feel like there was a need to do double screen and multiple effect works. We also wanted to take our time with the songs. So Hallelujah, there's definitely long sequences of Hallelujah performed, but with Tower of Song, when you get to that point in the film, there's almost four minutes of that song. So we just make different choices. I don't want to criticize a Todd Haynes or, you know, the one that I saw recently, the one music doc that I saw recently that I thought form followed function beautifully, and it did have a lot of amazing different effects and cutting and everything was the one on the Sparks Brothers. That's Edgar Wright. I loved that. I just felt like he did a lot of different things in it and it all served that subject. Let me follow up this a little bit, because I think this is interesting. Talk about form follows function in Leonard Cohen's own work. And I think this really comes to the fore greatly in his 50s, which I would argue is some of his best work, which is heartening. Uh, uh, yes. So on the one side, there's this perfectionism, right? There is this accretion of scores of verses, maybe as many as 180 verses of Hallelujah. So there's perfectionism going on. On the other side, there's this real dedication to the broken. There's a crack, a crack in everything. That's how like it's in the holy or broken hallelujah, which by the way, is only one of the various versions of that line. There's also the cold. Exactly. The cold yeah. of the broken hallelujah. And the holy and broken, the pun there is clear, right? Holes, full yeah. of holes. There's this notion of breaking, of, of not perfection. And he really brings that out that in this music in the 80s, as we talked about a little bit, the voice, his voice, which is, I think, beautiful, but he will deny that. And also the Ricky Dink Casio keyboard, with a very minimal, it, it, this is not the Moog synthesizers of Bob O'Reilly or something. No, right, no. right. <laughs> and some of that Casio actually made it into some of the final versions on, say, I'm Your Man. For sure on 10 new songs. How did that, could I call it kind of this dialectic of perfection and brokenness play out for you? So one thing I do want to say before I get into the general thing, you mentioned there is a crack in everything. One of the more intriguing, fun things to notice when we first got access to those, it was five notebooks that he wrote between the late 70s and the early 80s when he was working on Hallelujah. In those notebooks, there's a couple moments when you get to see the earliest renditions of Anthem. So he was working with that idea of brokenness while he was writing Hallelujah. And in fact, in the film, we have a slow zoom in on 
one of the pages of Anthem from one of the Hallelujah notebooks. And I think what the lines, the brokenness line says, and all of us are broken perfectly. I have to go back and look, but it's something along those lines. So I think you really are onto something. I think we're all broken, right? And one of the things we wanted to do with this film, and one of the reasons it's been so fun to do a lot of Q&A sessions where we go to theaters, is that it moves people. People who sit in the dark together and watch this film end up moved. They're going on Leonard Cohen's spiritual journey, and it's a moving journey. We won't go into the entire history of Hallelujah, but as you pointed out, it's an incredible story. Certainly, we talked a little bit about the incredible seven years of writing of lyrics and John Lissauer's engagement, ultimately. But they come with the album, various positions on which Hallelujah appears, and other, by the way, masterpieces or near masterpieces, If It Be Your Will, Night Comes On. Sales yeah. me to the end of love. I, I'm going to go with Night Comes On. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love Night Comes On. We use yeah. it. But I love Dance Me Too. And I think the story that Leonard Cohen tells about this, eventually it's rejected by Columbia, never really released in the United States by Columbia. And there's a line, it's a throwaway line, but we think about it when he says, first he reviewed my suit. That's personal. That's family. Leonard to Leonard Cohen. And then it says, Leonard, we know you're great. We don't know if you're any good. Can you talk a little bit about such an important moment in the story of the song? There is a sense in 1983-84 that in the United States, with MTV rising to become so culturally influential and music videos dazzling and high production, high gloss stars like Prince and Madonna and Michael Jackson ruling the roots that Leonard Cohen might not fit in there when he's not performing in that US-centric Bruce Springsteen way in that moment. So one interpretation being a little bit generous for what is a very snarky line to a great artist is that Walter Yetnikoff, the then head of Columbia Records, was saying that he well understood Leonard's brilliance and genius, but that Leonard might not be any good for the U.S. market in terms of a marketable recording artist. What's strange is that Walter Yetnikoff allowed that album to proceed all the way through final production rather than saying we're not going to record these songs. And that's what makes it even more wildly extreme and dismissive. In our last few interviews, at least, Dan's been a little bit more generous to Walter Yetnikoff than I would be. I think that Walter had a big ego. He says as much in his own autobiography, which is called Howling at the Moon. I highly recommend it for anyone who wants to be taken on a wild ride that gets into the cocaine-fueled world of the music business in the 70s and 80s. Anyway, Yetnikoff comes, he replaces Clive Davis. He has other producers that have replaced John Hammond. Leonard Cohen is not his man. Michael Jackson is his guy. Madonna is his girl. Oh yeah, Walter did not sign Leonard Cohen. He might've been stuck with Leonard Cohen. But he wasn't gonna get credit. I just feel like there was something around the idea that Leonard wasn't his discovery and it was easier to dismiss him. But when Clive Davis says in the movie, it is very weird and rare that someone would go to all the trouble and expense of producing an album and then just choose not to put it out. Obviously, it was devastating to John Lissauer's career, but it was devastating to Leonard, too, because this was supposed to be the album that was going to put him on the American map. And not only did it not do that, but it didn't even get to come out on a regular label in America. The story of the revival and recognition of Hallelujah is twisting. It's the story of most of your film. We don't need to touch at every point, but maybe the first person of note to recognize the song and start playing it was Bob Dylan. 
who some have painted as this kind of far more successful rival to Leonard Cohen, another seeker drawn to biblical imagery. But in fact, Dylan has been amazingly and honestly, uncharacteristically, just ask Donovan, supportive <laughs> of Leonard Cohen over his career. What's this about? What role did he play? And why do you think he's so supportive? I think they both respected each other. You get it in that amazing moment at the ASCAP Awards when Leonard's doing his off the cuff, but so Leonard-like articulate thing to Mr. Dylan, speech to Mr. Dylan. You know, Razzo, in one of his tapes, it's not in the movie, Razzo's talking to Leonard and he asks him about Hallelujah. And he says, you know, Leonard, when I was with Bob, he says, God, Leonard's got this brilliant song. It's called Hallelujah. And he started just reciting the lines. Dylan did. And Leonard said, oh yeah, he asked if I would send him some of the lines. Leonard says in the archival footage, we got together in Paris and we had what some would think of as shop talk. And I think the two of them respected each other. You've got two Jewish guys of a certain age, they're roughly parallel ages, literate, concerned very deeply with music, with lyrics, knowing that their voices were distinctive, but not the kind of voices that typically populated record albums and radio stations. I think there is a real simpatico there. And I think you're right in saying that is an atypical engagement from Bob Dylan. I think Leonard actually was very generous with a lot of different musicians along the way. He loved and respected the work of many different people. Meanwhile, Leonard Cohen is doing something really interesting with this song. He's treating Hallelujah less like an individual song and more like a song cycle, drawing upon these 180-ish verses that he's written over approximately seven years and singing different verses at different points. In general, it seems like he's replacing a little bit of the biblical stories with more personal, more sexually explicit material. How did you capture all this? It's nice that he was filmed performing different versions over the years. That is, makes life a lot better because we can see as he moved from what he called the King David version to the secular version that he started performing in concert, you can see him performing it. And that combined with access to the journals, the notebooks to see these other verses, and then a little graphical trick we work with just to show verses disappearing and new ones coming into place. It gives you a sense, yes, you're right, that as he was maturing and his interests varied, so too did he see that song as a touchstone. And he didn't really do that, to my knowledge, with other songs. He didn't start rewriting and re-recording or rewriting and performing a new in that way with another song. So he did with Anthem. With Anthem a bit, but not nearly to the extent of Hallelujah. As much as sometimes he would kid about, geez, you know, too many people are singing this song. And he was kidding about that. The other side of it is there's something about that song from the beginning that made him captive to that song that held him through the rest of his life. There's something going on there. And then we get in the closing credits of the movie, the wonderful song that he wrote and sang called You Got Me Singing, you know, where the lyric also say, the only song I ever had, you got me singing that hallelujah song. It's an interesting relationship that he had with his most famous piece of work. So I do want to set the record straight as much straight as I can. I actually really don't think there's 180 verses. It's mm. something that Ratso says in the film. Ratso, I love him. And it's more dramatic to say 180. And then he says, maybe it's 150. It was just a lot of verses. I would hazard that there's closer to 80, which is still a lot of verses. Some of the verses are just rewritten phrases or a line substituted for another line. But the other thing is that when Leonard was actually writing Hallelujah the first time out in the first years, those were the years that he was grappling very intensely with his Judaism. So you have him writing both 
the songs on various positions and his book of mercy which has a poem in it that's very liturgical one poem for every year it's a song they're 50 songs basically it's one for every year of his 50 years and there's a cover of one of the notebooks that i think is so incredibly important because it has the notebook cover and then it has various positions and book of mercy and you can see how closely connected those two works were but then of course as he continued working on the song and his life kept evolving at a certain point as he says in the film i decided i wanted to bring the hallelujah into the secular world and it was a very distinct decision that came a few years after various positions came out as an album. And importantly, two other things happened, which is Jeff Buckley, son of Tim, did a soaring version first live, St. Anne's, and then later on tape, and that he literally died. He drowned in the Mississippi, and his mythic death of this lost, youthful beauty resonated. And then John Cale recorded his version, and that appeared on the Shex soundtrack and made him popular. You folks do this great job. I'm just going to butcher if I try to cover it today. But you do a great <laughs> job covering that. But let's talk a little bit about what's going on with Leonard. So he did go to Mount Baldy for several years to practice Zen. And you have some amazing, I've never seen these photos and this film footage of him at Mount Baldy. It's wonderful. If you're interested in this part of his life, it really captures in a way, which I don't think has been captured before. And then shots of him driving looks like the 405. Yeah, um, yeah, he was. <laughs> yeah, it looks like the 405 between the airport and Westwood. Sorry, too much time in LA. So to see him driving the 405 is just so exciting for me. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and really captured, he spent a lot of the later part of his life in Los Angeles, and that hasn't really been captured. But anyways, he comes down from Mount Baldy, the depression's lifted a little bit, but two things drive him back to the road. One is the sense of his own mortality, and also importantly, his business manager pilfered his money all his money. And this pushed him back out in the road at an advanced age in some ways. Can you talk about this point in his life? I would say there are a few things just to clear up a bit. When he came down from Mount Baldy, the depression had not lifted. He felt that it did nothing as far as his depression, that he had failed to figure out what the depression was or why it was there. That came later. He, and he says it in that tape where you hear him talking to Ratso. He's like, I couldn't hack it. He went to India for a while, studied with someone else, witnessed the horrific poverty whether that was it or age, whatever it combined later to lift him out of the depression. His business manager had legal authority to siphon off all the money. And that's not what one is supposed to do with that power of attorney, but she was able to do that legally. So yes, that was one of the key moments for Leonard left flat broke to evaluate how he was going to get money back and live. Robert Corey enters the picture around that time. Robert starts working with Sony Publishing, Sony Records to try to arrange some sort of way for Leonard to begin to benefit by the recordings and the publishing. But where it gets interesting is that Leonard said that he, in those years up at Mount Baldy and beyond, had this unresolved sense that he had yet to perform his songs live for audiences in concerts to the level that he knew the songs deserved. And for him, the coincidence of an economic impetus with this unresolved sense of feeling like he had one more thing to try to do in his life, as far as being a performer, that I think was the one to rocket fuel that got him out. I'm gonna make a case, and you guys can agree or disagree with me. I think he becomes the best performer in his late 70s, mid to late 70s. Completely. And I think this is fascinating, right? You think of those early days when Judy Collins invites him on stage and he freaks out and leaves, or those disastrous tours in the 70s where yeah. he left the stage in Tel Aviv. And even in the 80s where you see those, he's standing there kind of formally in his beautiful Armani seats. 
But when I saw him, I heard about the show in Nova Scotia and then I heard he's going to Montreal. So I flew to Montreal. I was like, ah. wow. I was there for the first show back in Montreal. Amazing. Because um, we didn't know if, if he was going to continue with his tour. It turned out to be a five-year tour. But he we, didn't know. At that point, he had signed on to do like a handful of tours through Halifax and those mostly small places. And in fact, the concert promoter who had come up with the money for him to rehearse for three months and all that did it on a wing and a prayer and a hope that Leonard would A, go over and B, want to continue should there be an audience for him. Sharon Robinson, she's like, and then it just kept going on and on. Bigger venues to where he's playing stadiums towards yes. the end. I, Ratso describes it perfectly, which is, you know, he'd skip out. And remember, he's in his late 70s, sing for yes. two and a half or three hours and skip off. What is it that made him such a great performer towards the end of his a life? A lot of rehearsal, first of all. He demanded three months of rehearsal time with hand-selected musicians and singers. Sharon told us over dinner the other day that they would have rehearsed a particular song to the point where she felt that they really had nothing more to do to get that song up on stage. And he would do it again and again. So he was looking for a level of precision that he had never been afforded before. And also being sober because he was always in the early days on Xanax and lots of booze. Later on, he was drinking a lot. He says as much in the movie that he was drinking too much wine. Being sober allowed him to refocus as a performer. And I think in part that's because some of the whatever depression and fear that had plagued him all his life had lifted, had moved out of center. He told Robert Corey that one of the reasons that he didn't perform sober was that he had tremendous stage fright, which you see in the beginning with Judy Collins and that story about how he walks off the stage. I think part of asking for and then receiving enough resources to accomplish three months of rehearsal, which is just unbelievable. It made him feel secure enough to go on stage without having consumed alcohol or anything else. The other thing that he mentioned to Robert, which Robert was able to afford him in that five-year tour was that he'd been really chaotic. Those tours, he hadn't gotten space for himself. You know, there were people coming backstage, they were traveling on a bus and it was kind of haphazard. And Robert, he's like, this is what I'm going to give to you. I'm going to give you a quiet backstage. No one's going to be allowed back there unless you tell me they can come. So everyone from Joni Mitchell to Adrian Clarkson told us when we interviewed her, she's like, I wasn't allowed backstage. She's like, and I was there when Joni Mitchell assumed she was going to get to go backstage and they wouldn't let her backstage. So it was a very Zen performance space. I think together with those two things that Dan raised, the rehearsal to perfection, the soberness. Also great sound. Yeah. Because the sound. other thing, Leonard wanted everyone to hear every note in every word in every seat. Mm -hmm. So if someone was up in the rafters, they needed to hear every word perfectly because it's all about the word with him. The music's gorgeous, but the word is just what takes it off into the heavens, almost literally sometimes. But also, I think he had done so much work on himself by that time, by the time he's 74 years old, that it was a different Leonard Cohen, a more fully realized Leonard Cohen that walked out on the stage in Halifax than the Leonard Cohen that walked out on the stage in 1993 before he walked up to Mount Baldy. He didn't walk out. He skipped onto the stage. Right. A great band behind it, including Javier Mas, maybe the greatest Spanish oh, guitar player who ever lived. Absolutely. There are a lot of ways of measuring Leonard Cohen's legacy, the songwriting, the performing, but he set an example of how to behave. That's oh, Regina, Regina Spector, Spector who says that. I love that comment. It was like a lesson in how to be in the world. 
I think that's really important. And you capture something here that I have not seen. I've watched a lot of concert footage and they don't show something really important that she basically mentions, which is his gratitude. He would put his hat on his heart and he'd bend his head. And sometimes, especially the younger years, when I say younger, I mean mid seventies years, he would drop to his knees in front of his band. And you could just feel this gratitude, a, tr a true Buddhist gratitude. Can you talk about the importance of his legacy for other artists? That's a really good question. I remember when we came across that statement that we have him making in voiceover as he's starting to sing Hallelujah at the end, where he talks about you can stand at the center of your song and really embrace the emotional complexity. And he goes through this whole thing about the importance of giving the audience something different from what they would get if they just sat at home and listened to a record. I remember when we first started working with that audio saying, oh my God, this is a lesson for every performer. Because how many times have we gone to a concert and said, I could have just sat at home and listened to the record and they just were phoning it in. Leonard did not phone it in. I would hazard that every performer who wants to get started or maybe who's feeling tired in their middle ages should sit and watch something of a Leonard Cohen concert and take some lessons, take some notes from that. Brian Monica was the head of Sony Publishing when he saw the movie or penultimate version of the movie said with excitement, every aspiring songwriter needs to sit down and watch this movie because it shows that it's not just inspiration to craft an incredible song and especially lyrically takes a lot of work. And that sequence in the movie where Rabbi Finley talks about the bot kol, the feminine extension of God and the creative force into the mind of a person, where if you're open to receive that inspiration, and Leonard talks about this too, you get that inspiration, but then the pot coal goes away and what you are left with is a, a monumental task of polishing and refining and making it better and better. And that I think is evident in the process of hallelujah, particularly because you see these bot coal moments, these incredible verses that are gorgeous, but then you see keeps refining it, refining it. There's something like a diamond pressure that's exerted onto those lines. Final thought. So after Katie Lang's magisterial memorial version of the song, you show a brief clip of Cohen, probably in his 50s, saying that the world can seem impenetrable and you can either raise your fist or say hallelujah. And he tries to do both. What does yeah. that mean to you? And why did you want to finish on that? Because I think that gets at the crux of the broken hallelujah. And also it's like, you got to go on. I think that song and a lot of Leonard's work recognizes this imperfect world that we find ourselves in because we're imperfect human beings. And the way that he continues on is by both simultaneously raising his fist and saying this incredible word, which is hallelujah. Maybe it's the closest that he ever got to explaining the core of what that song really was about. He never really liked to do anything of that sort. But in that little nutshell observation, in some ways, it's the propulsion underneath the song. At one point, we thought about ending with the Kate McKinnon as Hillary Clinton, that Saturday Night Live cold open that horrible week after Trump was elected. Oh, Kate yeah. ended that by saying, I'm not giving up and neither should you. We shot this amazing scene with Kate. We got backstage in the writer's room with the three writers that worked through that cold open. She started crying in the middle of the scene. It's really beautiful. It was the first scene we cut. Ultimately, the test audiences that we showed it to and their tried and true critics all said unanimously, you can't keep that scene in the film for a number of reasons. But in a way, what Kate was saying when she looks at the audience 
at the end of that was I'm not giving up another should you. And in a way, like I raise my fist and I say, hallelujah. What I like about the ending, Michael, that you talk about is that it's one of these moments where an accident of cinema coincides with a closing beat where he finishes the statement and he holds the silence. There's just a little bit of a look on his face, almost an interrogation of where the German interviewer was in that. And a cloud outside a window passes and darkens his face. And you think this kind of happy accident, this crazy accident, the image alone speaks something that is ineffable and perfect for an ending. Hallelujah is this amazing song, which really is genre defying. It's a pop song, but it's so much more than that. Leonard Cohen is one of our greatest songwriters, and you have crafted a film that really rises to that high bar. So congratulations. Thank, Thank you. you. Wow. That means <laughs> That's the high praise. If you only know the song and you don't know anything about Leonard Cohen, you're going to learn a lot in this film. But if you are a devotee, like I obviously am, you're going to see a lot you didn't know and haven't seen before as well. And it will deepen your understanding of what the song means to Leonard, to other songwriters, and really to pop culture. You have this great scenes of other people performing the song on all these talent shows, some of them very ill-advised versions, in my opinion, but still meaningful, right? It means something to them deeply. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Do you have a favorite Leonard Cohen cover that isn't Hallelujah? Oh, I do, actually. I think it's when Sharon Robinson covers Alexander Leaving. I think she's an under-recognized force in the story of Leonard Cohen. I'm happy to say that the film recognizes that, and that's great. A recent one, when the movie played at the Tribeca Film Festival at the Beacon Theater, which is an amazing place to screen the movie, Robert Corey and the Sony Music team arranged for a, a small concert to happen on stage right after the screening. The last of the songs that were performed was Bird on a Wire with Amanda Shires, Judy Collins, and Sharon Robinson doing a three-part rendition of it. Now, that was pretty spectacular. I have two. If you want perfection, Emmy Lou Harris has a version of The Stranger Song, which is beautiful. And also interesting, I think it's inquisitive about gender in a way, the way she sings it. And the other one I'd recommend, that, which really is kind of a hidden gem, Roberta Flack did a version of Suzanne that is Odyssean, I guess I'd say. Um, it's nine and a half minutes long. It is beautiful. It is one of the most ambitious covers I've ever heard. And it's not really an extension of the song. It's like an exploration of the soundscape, the song. I tell people it's nine and a half minutes, but it won't seem like nine and a half minutes, I promise. Yeah.